0: All of you know somebody who has had, who has suffered from cancer. And you know people with the same exact diagnosis taking the same drug, two different outcomes. Imagine if we were willing to share this data. Imagine what we could do.
1: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Vice President Joe Biden is leading the Cancer Moonshot Initiative. President Obama announced the program during his State of the Union address in January 2016. It's meant to accelerate cancer research, develop more life-saving drugs, and better detect the disease at an early stage. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a non-partisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. In 1971, President Nixon declared a war on cancer he was determined to find a cure. He converted a biological warfare facility in Maryland into a cancer research center and signed into law the National Cancer Act. Nearly 50 years later, cancer continues to be the second leading cause of death in the US, claiming the lives of more than a half a million Americans each year. Vice President Joe Biden has first-hand experience with the disease. His son Bo died at age 46 of brain cancer. Now Biden is determined to work toward better treatment for cancer through the Moonshot Initiative. There are many barriers to finding a cure. Doctors, scientists, and healthcare care centers aren't collaborating. Laws like HIPAA prevent patients from sharing critical data. And drugs to treat cancer can cost upwards of $100,000 a year. That price makes life-saving treatment out of reach for many people. Still... Research has come a long way since Nixon's war on cancer, and Biden thinks significant progress is possible soon. The vice president spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in July. He's interviewed by Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson. A quick note as you listen. In the beginning of the talk, there are a few moments where Biden's microphone cuts out. Our apologies. Here's Joe Biden.
0: We've reached an inflection point, and some of the real experts that are in this audience uh, uh, know it, we've reached an inflection point that didn't exist during Nixon's time. Uh, for the first time, I learned when our son – Jill and I – when our son was going through what he went through, that um, in, uh, up until five years ago, immunology was like uh, a, a – uh, it was out in the wilderness. No one paid any attention. Um, there was very little collaboration and cooperation between virologists and immunologists and and, uh, and 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 genomic science. I mean, there was none of that. Uh, not, there, there was no, co- no no collaboration, but now there is. It's only just beginning. It's beginning. There's a lot more to do, but the difference between when nixon announced it now we've we've mapped the human genome we're in a position where uh, immunology is making significant strides we have cooperation with all we have everyone from mechanical engineers to to biochemists uh uh, that are engaged in the enterprise and it's for example when nixon announced it we, we had no idea there were 200 different cancers. This Nixon announced a war on cancer. I'm the sorry, I beg, years ago. I, I beg your pardon, I beg your pardon. And, and so, so what we've decided, uh, the President and I, he, uh, is that, uh, um, he decided, uh, uh, was that um, I believe we could make five years of progress, what otherwise would take 10 years. Even if we didn't have another single major breakthrough. If we take all the information we have available so now, better organize it, correlate it, share it, change the way the federal government operates its various agencies, the way everyone from the FDA to the NIH, the way the drug companies move, the way in which we do dual trials, the way we share information. For example, now we can do, I know you know this because you've written about it, we can do a, 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 a million billion calculations per second. And so the ability to find uh, patterns of why cancers form, why a cancer cell develops, how it metastasizes, uh, the ability of these supercomputers to go in and find patterns, to find out what it is in terms of everything from lifestyle to what other drugs you're taking, to find answers as to why so many people, all of you know somebody who has had, who has suffered from cancer. And you know people with the same exact diagnosis taking the same drug, two different outcomes. Imagine if we were willing to share this data. Imagine what we could do. And so there's a lot of breakthroughs that are possible but we have to change sort of the culture a little bit. Let me push on that a bit
2: because uh, for that to work you have to be able to be counted in to a big database. HIPAA makes it very hard to share electronic medical records. It's difficult for me even to get my electronic medical records you know, from Washington out here. Why haven't we been able to break the back, as Eric Lander said earlier this week, as Sylvia Matthews said, Sylvia Burwell said earlier this week, break the back on big data and getting our data in if we
0: want it? Come hell or high water, I'm going to break the back. Yes. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no, not a joke. Because no, no, I mean, it's important. Because what's happening here is, look, I'll try to be delicate. Don't. The culture of medical research does not rest on sharing data and information. Number. One. And it's not. By the way, they're, they're all they're all good guys and good women. It's, that's, that's, it's just the way in which it's developed over the last the last 100 years number one number two um you have uh i keynoted the davos this year on a i was asked though before i would do that would i have a round table on cancer and uh i had uh, two uh two nobel laureates at the round table i had a number of uh folks of heads of major hospitals and they started talking to me about how there's orion there is cancer link there are. There are a number of these new organiz- organizational structures where you have philanthropy and major hospitals. Uh, and and what they're doing is they're correlating data, all the data they have, in one place. And so I asked them all to come visit me, and I won't mention them all, but five, where uh, close to a billion dollars are being spent to aggregate this data. And I said, tell me what you're doing. And I sat in the... Uh, in the ceremonial office of the Eisenhower building that big conference table. And they all told me what they're doing, and I said, well, it sounds like you're all doing the same thing. <laughs> I'm not being facetious. And they all kind of put their heads down. And I said, wouldn't we go make a hell of a lot more progress if it was all open data, if you shared it all? And the answer was, uh, yeah, and after we broke up, And two of the heads of these major outfits came up to me and said, keep the pressure on. I I can't do this myself. I mean, I'm not able to, you know. So there is a growing recognition on the part of the major. I've visited now uh, 10 or 11 of the major cancer centers in America, in the world, but they're in America. I have spent a better part of a day at each one of them. I have uh, met with, I've spoken to over 9,000 cancer researchers. These two large organizations represent them. I've privately met with over 280 of the leading uh, virologists, oncologists, uh, immunologists in the world. Um, And uh, they all privately say basically the same thing. They say that we're not sharing data well enough, and if we did, we could exponentially increase the potential to find answers to a whole range of questions relating to cancer therapies. Number two, they say that it is very difficult to be able to... um, Uh, do dual trials with different medicines. You represent one drug company, I represent another. A a bright, young researcher says, I think the combination of those two could really uh, have a potential impact, and it does. Uh, They say that they're not enough, there's no way, if any of you have gone through it, where if you want to find out whether you can get in a cancer trial, there's no place you can go to find out every cancer trial that's going on in the United States. Hell, I can get on, you can get on, you know, Uber can tell you exactly where everybody is, how to, you know, I mean. Well,
2: let's pick that one. How do we get more people access to information about getting into the cancer trial?
0: Well, here's what we're doing. We are changing, we're gonna have at NIH, we're having a new website. I, you know, I knew you'd ask me that, so we're going to, I, I can't remember what the hell the name of the website is, but, uh, Greg, what's uh, the website? But, uh, <laughs> but, we'll, but we'll, as I say, get it to you. But there's going to be a new website where we are going to aggregate every single solitary trial That takes place in the United States of America because here's what happens if you don't live near a major cancer center You don't live near MD Anderson or you don't live near the hutch You don't I mean I can name them all and you're an oncologist in, uh, in In a rural area in the Midwest or anywhere in the country you have a patient you diagnose with a particular cancer and you want to get them in a trial, you have no idea how the hell to get them associated with or tied up with or connected with that trial. So there's gonna be one place we're in the process of putting this site together now, and that NIH is, where you can click on and you can find out what every trial for every type of cancer that's being conducted. It's also a helpful thing for the pharmaceutical companies. They have trouble finding People to be in their trials, and the and, and, and the perception is that people don't want to uh, give their information. Well, they're they're much more ready and willing to give their information, and it can be done and your privacy protected uh, in a very easily. But up to now, there's been no willingness to decide. There's going to be one site, one place, um, and, and in return, should the
2: pharmaceutical companies try to keep a lid on these $100,000-a-year drugs?
0: Well, that's not necessarily related. But, yes, they should try to keep a lid. But here's – look, in fairness to the, to the companies, they, uh, they drill a lot of dry holes. They spend a lot of money uh, doing a lot of tests that cost tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. They get no return on their investment. But there's some place between the sweet spot between – the uh, a legitimate return on your investment, and um, and holding hostage people who need the drug to live but can't possibly afford the drug. For example, there is one particular drug that's been very very helpful. I don't want to pick on a particular company. One particular drug has been very helpful for uh, a, um, a lymphoma, cancer, a particular one. When the drug came out 15 years ago, and it's pretty miraculous the impact it has for this particular cancer, it was $26,000 a year. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know where Greg Simon is, but I think it's $149,000 a year. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. Imagine if Jonas Salt decided that he was going to patent, like drug companies do essentially, get a patent for, for his vaccine for polio. And he said, okay, I'm going to charge $1,000 a shot. What the hell would have happened? What would have happened? There's some place between a rational return on an investment and profit, particularly since an awful lot of what drug companies are able to accomplish are a consequence of taxpayer investment in research and development, there's about somewhere between eighty and a hundred billion dollars uh, a year in research uh, done by a, a myriad of outfits out there to try to find cures or or or, uh, or, 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 or uh, drugs that will increase the lifespan. About thirty billion of that's federal money, mm-hmm. and so there is some correlation here between the, their their progress. Their success and their societal obligation, and I think this can be done. Excuse my back to people over here. I apologize. And my Secret Service agent is eight feet tall, so I can't <laughs> see you here. Uh, by the way, he's a great guy. I'm embarrassing the hell out of him right now, but um, he was a hell of a basketball player. That's another question. Anyway, <laughs> I don't get a chance to embarrass them very often. Um, but, but. But I, to make a long story not quite so long, there has to be I, I met with industry, uh, a round table at the, at, at the Cancer Moonshot summit we had. And a number of industry personnel, we, we had a round table, was off the record with about uh, 20 people. And I said, "Look, we got to have to have an adult conversation about this. There's got to be a way. We've got to find a way through here. You know, as, as Lasker said, if you think uh, drugs are expensive, try disease. I'm paraphrasing. And so there is a correlation between the communal obligation, the public obligation to underwrite the cost of some of these drugs that exceed the cost that is imposed, that is in, in, incurred by drug companies in producing these drugs. But um, it's, it's a debate that has to take place because... You're going to see, you're going to see in the next six months to the next five years, you're going to see some significant, significant drug applications that can extend and save lives, that the price tag on them is absolutely prohibitive, including copays. Last point, and this is not a political point, it's a practical point. Without the Affordable Care Act or something replacing it, you would have tens of millions of people who could not even remotely afford some of the expensive but much less expensive drug requirements that cost $10,000, dollars and $30,000 a year. So if you're a family of four making less than sixty dollars you still have great trouble, but you don't ever have to pay more than 12. That's a That's a gigantic chunk of your income. But still, it's within the reach of some people to be able to do. But without that, I mean, we're gonna find, you have a revolution on our hands, figuratively speaking.
1: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Vice President Joe Biden is today's featured speaker. He's interviewed by Aspen Institute CEO, Walter Isaacson. The discussion was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival in July. Since patient information is so critical to cancer research, just how easy is it for someone with a disease to share their medical records? Walter Isaacson continues the conversation.
2: What if you had your gene sequence, you're on one of these drug trials, how do we make it easier to say, count me in, put all of my data out there in the public realm for people to use?
0: Well, there's two things. One, you got to make clear to people they own their data, yeah. And right now, it's not so clear they do. Right now, there is. Uh, I remember, Jill won't like me mention this because it's. I remember with Bo, uh, our, our, our my, my son, the attorney general. Um, uh, I assumed that the sequence of his human genome, he owned, that he could do whatever he wanted with it. Oh. Um, not accurate. Uh, um, I assume that all the records that uh, that they had of his, his battle for over two years with glioblastoma, that, that, that they, they could be made available, uh, not so clear. The cost of getting those records was, uh, and by the way, he was at a great, wonderful hospital with incredible doctors. I, I don't want to turn this into a screed about but but it's just practical things that are really, really difficult to work your way through. For example, um, we all heard, and uh, Democrats and Republicans have talked about uh, how, much, how much money we could save in the health care system and how much we could increase the efficacy of certain uh, um, uh, um, uh, uh, medicines as well as uh, um, propo- uh, uh recommendations by docs as how to treat all kinds of diseases. If we had electronic record keeping. right? Well, you know, I know a lot of folks don't like the fact that the, the, Re- the Recovery Act was 800, over $800 billion, but to be blunt with it, you, uh, the, the President and I sat down and said, while we're doing this, we might as well try to make government function better. And so we did things that bothered people that Amy loved and others didn't, like, uh, you know, focus $100 billion in education, $48 billion on, a high, uh, you know, on, on interstate, uh, excuse me, on uh, um, infrastructure. Uh, infrastructure, more than the interstate highway system, et cetera. One of the things we did, we put in $35 billion for electronic record keeping. Well, what happened is five great outfits came along and they all bid for it. They all got a piece of it. And they all made sure they couldn't talk to each other. It's amazing. So, incompatible. I'll give you a a practical example. A a lot of you know this. You know, there's a great advantage uh, to all of you in this room. Uh, We probably have greater access to the best people than other people may have. As Vice President of the United States, my son was a decorated war veteran. He was, uh, you know, so. Yeah, I he he was at he, we we got him to MD every anybody could get to but we got him to MD Anderson and and toward the end he was he turned out to be part of a trial of one with a very exper- two experimental programs that uh, that were uh, um, that were last ditch uh, and uh, um, and but and was they were immunotherapies designed to. Uh, get the T cells to focus on focusing on the cancer, break the blood brain barrier, get to the cancer, and essentially eat up the cancer to, in layman's terms. But it required him to have MRIs regularly, meaning a couple times a day, to see what was happening, how it was going. And uh, what we found out was when he was at, uh, because he had been up here, uh, he was at uh, Walter Reed um, in Bethesda. And uh, they were very good. They had a great team as to following what MD Anderson wanted them doing in terms of the particular MRIs and the the focus, et cetera. And we found out there's no way to get the information.
2: Astonishing. Down.
0: So the medical doc assigned to me, a really great diagnostician, a good guy, Doc O'Connor, former Delta. Uh, He was going in, and my son-in-law, who sounds so, but he's a leading surgeon in the Delaware Valley, does at Jefferson Hospital, does uh, cancer flaps, reconstructs people's bodies and faces. with And uh, because they both knew their way around, what they do, they go in and take a picture of the MRI on a cell phone (laughs) and sending it down, or getting on a plane and flying down. Now, that is bizarre. I mean, it really is bizarre, we cannot, we, and, and there's no incentive for any one of these five outfits to say, hey, look, let's all get together. And so one of the things I'm finding is I've gone can around the- push that? Yes, Can you push that? Can you make that happen? Here's what I think we can do. There is a growing consensus among the best people in the country across the board in all of the disciplines that relate to the fight against cancer that we should have a, um, a common language, uh, like, for example, when, uh, when, the, uh, when, when, when the human genome was sequenced, uh, we found out that, um, you know, you're talking about a couple billion pieces of information and thousands of, of genes, and it was so big that we concluded no one outfit could do it. So we, what we did is we went around the world, literally, and we handed it out, we said, okay, you, you take, I'm being f- figurative, yeah. you, you take A to C, and you take C to, 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 to P, you know, and we broke it up. But the condition was that each of these organizations, and some were in other countries, had to immediately share mm-hmm. all of the data that they got with one another. It was insistent by the NIH that it had to be done that way. So we cracked the human genome. We actually are able to do that in sharing that information instantaneously. And now in the human genome, there is a common language. You must use the precise language that is needed, the precise terminology in order to do anything in terms of dealing with the genome. There is no such precise language as it relates to medical records. So one, to oversimplify it, one doc will write down, uh, you know, a broken leg. other guy will write down a broken femur. Another guy will write down a fractured tip. And there's no way the computer can go out and aggregate all that data. So one of the things I proposed when I started this five months ago is why don't we insist on a common language mm-hmm. and electronic record-keeping? Well, that made a lot of people very angry. But at the last Moonshot, where we had over 9,000 people participating, you had leading members of, the, of industry and medicine saying we need a common language. And that's one of the things I talked to uh, one of the brightest guys I've ever met is Lander. Yeah, Eric I mean, Lander, I, mean, Lander, I mean, Eric Lander at MIT, you know. Uh, so we're talking about how we can get a consensus mm-hmm. among these various large entities that we have a common language in electronic record keeping you
2: mentioned a couple of times what you learned from uh, your son Beau's treatment.
0: What about emotionally? Walk us through that. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'll bet uh, 20% of you have had someone close to you uh, die or go through a pretty damn tough period of time. And um, uh, one of the things that uh, we all have in common in this tent is that uh, when someone you love, when someone you adore, when someone's your soul, and they have a problem, particularly if they're your child or your spouse, or just any, but particularly if you're your child, um, what you try to do is you try to learn as much as you possibly can about whatever that crisis is, facing that child at that moment. And uh, so uh, that's what Jill and I did. And um, uh, and one of the things for us at least, and for my Ashley, my daughter sitting here who is the love of his life, um, uh, was that uh, We knew uh, the August before at Anderson that he received a death sentence. Stage four glioblastoma, the brain. Virtually no one makes it. But like all of you, you've been through this. uh, Hope matters. My mother used to say, as long as you're alive, you have an obligation to strive and you're not dead till you've seen the face of God. And you, and you, and you, you have to have hope. And for Jill and me and my whole family, um, Bo made it. Um, uh, I don't know how to say it easier. Bo made it. Um, possible for us to get up every morning and put one foot in front of the other. When Bo, you know, six months before uh, he left, um, uh, he sat me down. Jill and I were having dinner at his home, and um, on a Friday, we'd come home every weekend, and he asked his wife, Hallie, a wonderful woman if she could put the kids upstairs and come back down. And he sat down with me and he said, Dad, I, I know no one loves me more than you do. But, Dad, look at me. Look at me. I said, Honey, I'm looking at you. And he said, Dad, I'm going to be okay. Um, excuse me. I'm going to be okay no matter what happens. But you've got to promise me, Dad. Promise me. Promise me you're going to be okay. You've got to be okay, Dad. Look at me, Dad. You've got to be okay. And so Bo, for us, was, um, uh, you know, he uh, every time we'd get sort of down, it was the kid who was, he just, he just gathered the family up and he'd say, "Now come on, damn it, come on." Um, and so it was a, maybe a different experience than. Than, than some people have, but as my son Hunter said, uh, he said, "Dad, I don't know whether to thank you or be hate you for teaching us how to love each other so much, um, because you know, uh, well, you all know, you know, I know. I'm not." But the one thing Bo did was, you know, I know, since I'm not running, you know what I mean? Intention to run it, I can say it now. Uh, Bo made us all promise, not a joke, promise, that we'd stay engaged, man, that we'd push this. You know, my dad used to have an expression, he'd say, Joey never complained and never explained. Not one time from the moment he was born, you, can, you will not find a living person will tell you Bo Biden ever, 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 ever once complained about a thing. And so he looked at us and it was like, you know, you got to stay in the game. you got to get up. She'd say you got to put one foot in front of the other. Just move. Move. So we've decided to... Um, I'll conclude with this. We decided to look at what happened to our beau and focus on what he'd want us to be doing, what he'd want us to be working on, what, he'd, uh, what, what, what would make him proud of us of the things that he cared so deeply about. And um, I hope I'm saying it the right way, babe.
1: Vice President Joe Biden was a featured speaker at the Aspen Ideas Festival. He's interviewed by Walter Isaacson. Next, audience members ask questions.
0: I'm Rachel Richards with Pickens County here and welcome to our community. We're really glad to have you here. I wanted to go briefly back to the cancer issue to ask, um, it's my understanding that in the European Union where there is single payer health care. The health system gets more concerned with the causes of cancer and the potential contaminants within our society and chemicals and so on. But here we're kind of more siloed where, you know, you go to the medical community when you're sick, but they're not really looking for the various uh, environmental causes. How do we break that wall and that silo down between causation and treatment? Well, I think we are, by the way. There's an awful lot going on now. For for example, there are... Uh, at uh, at MD Anderson at uh, um, uh, over uh, uh, in Baltimore at I'm trying to think of the other major I think it's the Hutch, I, I know Hopkins but I said but uh, I'm thinking of the Hutch out in Washington State, um, they are working on, We're going to give Kim Davis a shout out too for doing that. Yeah. They they y'all are working on 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 being able to conduct tests. Uh, that are uh, uh, blood tests, in effect, to determine whether or not you have a cancer marker in your bloodstream that can give give advance notice by a long shot as to whether or not you're likely to develop cancer. I was out uh, at the Huntsman Institute. They've come up with a way, with others have as well, determine hereditary causes of colon cancer. Um, and now what they have is they're notifying people so that they can have, instead of uh, the colonoscopy once every two years, this cadre of people will be able to live a hell of a lot longer because they'll be able to go in and have colonoscopies, and there's changes in colonoscopies, by the way, um, every uh, uh, six months or so, they're gonna live longer. So we're doing both here. We're, we're not just focusing on on one side or the other. But if you want to, if, if you could wave a wand, you only got to do one thing, cure, make, deal with one of the problems of cancer. If you said, if I could deal with prevention and get a response, you'd eliminate 50% of the cancers that occur in the United States of America. 50% of the cancers. A, dealing with the air, the water, what you eat, what you smoke, what your dietary habits are. They're gigantic, gigantic, gigantic impact on cancer. One of the things we're doing in this Moonshot is we are trying to uh, bring together a whole group of folks to cooperate. Like I just went out to Cleveland, the Cleveland Clinic in Case Western, along with GW uh, Health uh, Facility, because the incidence of smoking are higher in both of those communities, D.C. and Cleveland, than there are other places. And if you're able to get folks exposed to lung cancer, uh, get uh, get, uh Test it whether they have lung cancer, you can save a whole lot of lives. There's setting up mobile van. There's a lot of things we can do. But we also can't walk away if you just did this based on on numbers. There's a lot of basically orphan cancers out there that kill 125, 250,000 people out of, out of the uh, 600,000 uh, who are dying every year, the million, uh, um, you know, there's a total of uh, cancers, I think it's 14 million people get cancer this year and one point some die of cancer. I mean, so we, what we're trying to do, and there's no reason why we, don't, we think we can't, is try to do all of it because we have enough disciplines to deal with it all without taking away from or impacting upon any one of the initiatives, whether it's prevention, better diagnostics, whether it's better treatment, we can do it all, we can do it all. And by the way, money is not our biggest problem. Reorganizing the way in which we attack cancer is a gigantic, gigantic, gigantic change that has to take place in order for us to have this sense of urgency. I know I'm always viewed as, I don't know, I'm often viewed as being a little too passionate and a little too, uh, anyway. Um, (laughs) But you know, there are thousands and thousands of people as I speak today who are turning to their doc and say, Doc, can you give me just one more month so I can see my daughter get married? Doc, Doc, can I get by? can I get by for another eight months and see my granddaughter graduate? Doc, can I get this? Just give me, can I get another two months? Because if deals come through, I'll be able to pay off my home and my wife will not be left in debt. Doc. And there's so many things that we can do right now that can extend life a little bit. Also, reach real cures. And there's no reason why we have to do it. Uh, um, we have to choose among the various disciplines we're going to focus on, in my view.
2: Thank you. Uh, there was one way in the back who's been waving his hand, and you get the last question. So, because uh, we need an ankle biter to send us off.
0: Um, How do you think the next president and vice president can achieve and improve on your cancer treatments? Well, I tell you what. I'll answer the question if you make me one promise. When you're president (laughs) and I can buy with my great-grandchildren and they say Joe Biden's out there, you won't say Joe who, okay? (laughs) What a bright young guy. How old are you? I'm 10. How old? I'm 10. Oh, you're getting old, man. Double figures. (laughs) Well, I think we can do two things. One of the things that I was excited about in the cancer moonshot and that, uh, Greg, what, 260 off-site cancer, 270, with over 7,000 people, um, serious docs and, and patient groups, et cetera, all over America. From Guam to Puerto Rico, uh, and thousands of people assembled for the first time ever at the request of the government, um, and all all the stakeholders are there. I hope we've done one thing: we have re-energized the notion that an awful lot is possible, making sure that everybody understands that there's so much we can do. And I hope I. We've come forward with 38 changes we've offered, about 20 of them on the federal government side of the ledger. For example, you know, uh, um, if if we make these changes, the next president's going to be in a much better position to make some of the moves that have to be made. For example, if you go into a, uh, an old diner or you go into a bar and you put m- m- money in a jukebox, you don't have to work out whether you're gonna have a song played or whether you have a licensing agreement with that artist to be able to have the song played. Well, right now, you have uh, um, uh, li- literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of drugs in trial right now, developed by various uh, um, uh, companies. and. And, uh, and, and individuals in research. And so what happens is you have a lot of bright, young and not so young researchers saying, if we took a combination of these three drugs and combined them together, we would be able to impact exponentially on the, that particular cancer that's being treated. But to get that done now, what happens is, you have to reach, you can get agreement as to what you want to get this done. NIH will sign off on you being able to do that. But then you got to go work out an agreement with each of the companies relating to intellectual property and a whole range of other things. We put a new thing in place that is going to, I think, have a real impact. NIH is negotiating with, and so far we have nine or ten biopharmaceutical firms signed up, an awful lot of the biggest philanthropies, an awful lot of the hospitals, where there's now hundreds of drugs in trial. And what you, all you have to do is they've already worked out the mechanism that how you would share, how they would share and protect their investment in each of the drugs that they, that they produced. So you don't have to work out a licensing agreement with them. Hmm. And this will go from it, having taking a year to a year and a half to be able to get permission to move with dual therapies, to be able to do it in three months. And that's going to affect... A lot of people's lives, Somewhere, I can't predict where or how or who, but it's going to increase the sense of urgency of moving forward. There's a whole range of things we can do where we can move much more rapidly. At the federal level, we can move much more rapidly. Where we can get CMS more engaged in carrying the cost of some things. Where we can get NIH more responsive directly so that they're going, taking chances earlier on with younger folks who are in. Right now, you want to get a grant. You have to be in a lab of somebody very established and be there for a long time in order to qualify, etc. So there's ways we can speed up without in any way um, uh, uh, negatively impacting on safety or security or proprietary rights that can just move this whole train down the track faster. And I think even people who don't like how hard I'm pushing on some of these things, you ask them, I think they'll tell you privately, yeah, we can move a whole lot faster. We can move a whole lot faster. Some don't like moving faster because it's not going to be them that did it. It's not going to be that individual who did it uh, because there's not... Shared science is not... If you're going to... If you're an astrophysicist, and you want a, a grant from DARPA or from the space agency, and you get that grant and you decide on, you find some breakthrough on whether it's Saturn, Saturn rings or water on Mars, whatever, you gotta make that information immediately, immediately available to, on the web to everybody who wants it so they can all benefit from it. You do that in, uh, what was the one was done uh, the the, uh, the cancer breakthrough and it was a uh, uh, in, instead of Science magazine doing it uh, the, genome. the when when the genome was finally cracked mm-hmm. the the decision was where to publish all this information and Science magazine which is more prestigious didn't want it unless they had a proprietary interest in who could have access to it? So it was published in uh, in Nature magazine. I'm serious. Yeah. Now, as my brother would say, go figure. Imagine keeping that information under wraps for another year or year and a half because some proprietary interest in the field of cancer. That year makes a difference between someone living and dying. Whether they live another three months or six days or whatever. And so all I'm trying to, we're trying to do is within the range of reason speed up the process in a way that in no way compromises public health, safety, or security. Does not go in and attempt to deny the benefits that should flow from the research and the development done by an individual or a company but has some rational basis to it. You're awful kind, thank you all so very much.
1: Joe Biden leads an initiative to advance research on cancer. It's called Cancer Moonshot. He was interviewed by Walter Isaacson, president and CEO of the Aspen Institute. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in July, 2016. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.